Hi, Hi, Mr. Tom. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm so happy I get to finally like see you again. I agree. It's good to see you. Thank you so much for coming to help us with the podcast. It means to us. Our first question is, um, what department do you work for in the reserve? Um, we're a, a nonprofit volunteer organization. Okay. The Friends of Fitzgerald Marine Reserve. I'm currently the co-vice president of the Friends of Fitzgerald Marine Reserve. So we're all volunteers. It's an all-volunteer organization. Nice. And um, how long have you been working there? And what are some of the changes you've seen in Fitzgerald over the years? I've been doing this for 20 years. Wow. And what are some of the changes you've seen over the years? Changes. Um... Well, there have been, there's a variety of different changes um, in both the personnel that it, that it manages the park, um, as well as the uh, government structure that is put in place to protect that place. Okay. And so there have been a couple of ch major changes in that regard. Um, in 2010, the state of California declared what was then the reserve to be part of a new state marine reserve, and it gave more protection to the uh, life in the tide pools. Okay. Um, in terms of, of changes just in what you see out there, um, the number of animals uh, has been the, both the diversity and the number have been going down over the last 20 years. So for instance, in, in 2013, we had a major disease that affected the sea stars and we lost a lot of our sea stars, including some species had not come back. Wow. So uh, that was caused primarily, uh, it's, it's believed that it was caused primarily by global warming. Okay. What type of disease was? It's called the sea star wasting disease okay and basically what would happen is the sea stars would get these white lesions or spots on them and then they just fall apart their their flesh just sort of melted oh wow and that's because of the heat from the climate change well it probably affected um the bacteria and the viruses that um were part of their environment caused them to be more susceptible it probably affected their immune systems and made them less immune to some of those critters. You do know that even though the water out there looks clear, that in two drops of water, there are a million bacteria and 10 million viruses. Yeah. So, and we live, and every animal out there has a microbiome. Indeed, we have micro, what's called a microbiome. So we have all these bacteria and other microbes living in us and on us, which are essential to us, and every living creature out there has also what type of species of starfish were um, affected the most? And since there was like a loss of those starfish, how did it affect the rest of the ecosystem? We lost two species entirely. Uh, oh, one was, and they lost them all up and down the West Coast. Okay. I understand that they're, they're, they're starting to see a few come back 
farther up in uh, above British Columbia, up in up in, along the Canadian coast and the Alaskan coast. Okay. But down here, they have they have not recovered, and it, it was the uh, sunflower star, which was the great big star with. Yeah. Yeah, we don't see those out there anymore. The other uh, species that we don't see anymore is the pink bay star. And that was a beautiful pink bay star. It looked like Patrick. <laughs> and it's it's gone too, and, and I don't think it's come back. And the other sea stars, they declined dramatically in number. So we still see a few of them, but not in anywhere. And in terms of, in terms of the ecosystem, mm -hmm. Everything out there is connected. Yeah. Everything is connected. So when you lose one thing, whatever it eats expands, and whatever used to eat it diminishes. So if there's a food chain out there that is built on primary producers, which are the algae, and then all of the animals have to feed from there up. So um, it has affected the overall because. Uh, some of the sea stars were considered to be what are called key star species. Okay. And so when you take the sea stars away, you affect everything that either either they eat or eats them. Okay. So we were wondering, like, what makes Fritz Gerald unique, and how did it become a marine reserve? Ah, it was unique because it's sort of set in in a in a location where. It was the southernmost area in which a lot of the northern species were found. And it was the northernmost area in which a lot of the southern species were found. So it had this really interesting, diverse wow. animals thing. And there was a lot of, I don't know whether you've looked at, at what happened, what, what inspires this, but there's a, a current that runs off the coast here and it causes upwelling. And it brings cold water up that has a lot of nutrients in it, which causes really excessive growth. And so this was a very diverse area with a lot of diversity and a lot of a, a lot of activity in the marine in the marine environment. And as far as when it was started, um, going back to right at the beginning of the 20th century, it was an area that was because of all this diversity. People were out there harvesting a lot of things, like abalone and crabs and all kinds of things. Eels, they, you know, fish. They were taking a lot of stuff because of, there was a lot out there, and and because it was had all this diversity, it was a place where the universities came to, like the marine biologists from UC Berkeley came over here a lot to study things, and they started to be concerned about how much was being taken out of the out of this area and felt that, that if it kept up, that it would become barren. And so in, in the mid-1960s, they, together with some local residents here who were also concerned about what was going on out there, the amount of take that was happening, petitioned the state and the county to form the reserve. And the reason you need both the county and the state is the land portion of the reserve that is where you park and where the visitor center is that's a county park so in 1968 the county bought that property and set it aside as a county park 
and the park extends down to the mean high tide line. From the mean high tide line out, the state is that state-owned property. So the state had to declare that as a, as a, as a marine reserve. And they did that in 1969. Okay. And, and there was a, an arrangement between the state and the county that because the county was going to have rangers stationed in the land, that they would manage the reserve on behalf of both the state and the county. But so that so there's mutual jurisdiction. So from the mean high tide line down, all the regulations are enforced by the state. From the mean high tide line up, all the regulations in terms of what you can take and can't take off the land and the beach are covered by the county. Okay. So I noticed that you are saying Fitzgerald used to be very um, diverse, like it was diverse. So like how much of that diversity has gone down then from then to now? There hasn't been any measure of it. Uh, okay. It's hard. It's, and you have to understand that the intertidal is a very complicated environment. There's a lot going on out there. And so, you know, you got big waves coming in, storm coming in, you've got all these boulders that are running around. You've got all the, all the stuff from humans, all the pollution that's being coming down out of the streams. Uh, you've got global warming going down. And so it's hard to assess exactly what is going on out there. I can tell you that anecdotally, the diversity has gone down dramatically. Okay. Um, we don't see as many of anything out there. I mean, we don't see as many crabs. We don't see as many snails. We don't see as many chitons. We don't see as many urchins. We don't see as many sea stars. So do you know what percentage of the ocean are tide pools? What percentage? Yeah. Not very much. You know, the ocean covers about 72% of the globe. And most of it is obviously way away from the tide pools. So it's got to be a very, very, very small percentage. And of course, a lot of places don't have tide pools. Mm -hmm. In order to have tide pools, you have to have a fairly shallow area that when the tide goes out, it's, it's exposed. Okay. So some places, you know, where the, where the ocean just comes right up and all there is is a beach. And you never see any exposed reef. Mm -hmm. And okay. that has to do with the geology of, of uh, the area out there. There's a fault line that runs through there. And on the west side of the fault line is being pushed up. Oh. So that's why you've got all that reef exposed is because it's being geologically pushed up. Oh, wow. That's so cool. And it's moving north. It, that side is moving up and north very slowly wow. and so actually if you go out there and you look in 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 the, on the reef there you see a lot of uh whales whale fossil whale fossil bones and you say how did the whale get there in the tide pools well it, that area of the tide pool uh, the, the area of the rock out there is about three to five million years old in the three five three to five million years it's moved about 40 miles north oh so wow. in deep water and if you stood there long enough, you'd be in Marin County. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. The north. So how many inches per year then is that fault line moving? There are numbers on that. It's very, very small. And it take, takes a long, long time. 
Wow. It has to do with, you know, the, the San Andreas Fault, the same thing is happening on the full on San Andreas Fault. Slip Fault. Yeah. Were there any natives that lived here before um, it was made of marine reserve in Fitzgerald? Oh, yeah. Um, they um, they believe that the, the um, indigenous people, which we call the indigenous people, they believe, I know what they believe, they believe they've been here forever. They believe they were created here. Wow. Whoa. Yeah, that's their belief. And wow. they believe that the first beings on Earth were spiritual beings that took animal figures. And the three main ones were the coyote, mm-hmm. the hummingbird, and the eagle. And the, and the coyote created humans, according to them, and wow. taught them how to take care of the Earth. That was... That's, that was the re- their reason for being, was to take care of the earth, and in return, the earth would take care of humans. And that was part of their reason for being, totally part of their culture. So in their stories, they said they would, um, there were spiritual beings who would be in a coyote, a hummingbird, or uh, what was the third creature? An eagle. An eagle. Okay. Why those three animals? What was the importance of those three animals? Don't know. It's part of, you know, any religion has certain elements that, that were, were just probably created or dreamt about. You know, a lot of, a lot of their, a lot of their religious beliefs were based on dreams. And so, you know, they've been passed down for, and, the anthropologists and the and the archaeologists believe, and the DNA people believe that that the indigenous people that occupied this area actually came from Asia. Oh, oh wow! And came across because Asia and North America were joined up at at in the Bering Sea. Yeah, and it, a bridge called Beringia. So there was land that came across, and there was a lot of ice and stuff. But they they came across probably about twenty thousand years ago. Wow! Came around twenty thousand years ago, and they came. They believe, according to the archaeologists, that they came down the coast. They didn't go inland because that was covered by ice. So they came down the coast, probably in boats, and they came all the way down, and they went all the way down to South America. So why would they want to move? resources or land or absolutely it's resources people were looking for food primarily a place you know okay 